We turn a corner of sorts in our series in Genesis this morning. Chapter 24 really serves as the pivot point in the narrative from a focus on Abraham and his family to now focusing on his descendants, on those who would come after him. And it's made evident today by the fact that our text begins with Abraham sending his servant, sending the man who was in charge of his estate to find a wife for his son Isaac. And then the text ends today with a wedding and there's no mention of Abraham at all. And then we turn the page into chapter 25 and, and we have some brief closing thoughts on Abraham and then just simply the account of his death. In fact, today's text contains the very last dialogue of Abraham that we see recorded in the scriptures. Now, if you're reading along, you'll know I skipped over chapter 23. I encourage you to take time to read Genesis chapter 23. It records the death of Sarah. Sarah died at 127 years of age and was buried in a cave near Hebron. So this might give you a glimpse into how pivotal of a passage this is. By the time we get to verse 9 of our text today, Abraham and Sarah are essentially out of the picture. So we continue moving forward through Genesis. I do want to point out one other shift that we see take place at this point in Genesis. For the most part, up until this point, we've been covering broad swaths of time in fairly short sections. You can think of it this way. The first 25 chapters of Genesis, for example, from Adam until the death of Abraham, most theologians agree from Adam to the death of Abraham is a little over 2,000 years. From this point on in Genesis, the remaining 25 chapters will cover about 200 years. Uh, So the first half is about a little over 2,000 years. The second half is about 200 years. And, And what you'll see over this last half of Genesis is that Generally speaking, the narrative accounts get longer. You've probably noticed this if you've read through the text. They get more detailed. For example, here in chapter 24, 24 is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. There are about 1,750 words in chapter 24 that tell us about the events leading up to Isaac and Rebekah's marriage. And for comparison's sake, that's about three times as many words as we find in chapter 3, where Moses gives us the account of the temptation of Adam and Eve, of their fall into sin, and of the curses that follow that. The accounts from here on out get very detailed, much longer. And so one of the things you'll notice is that the preaching in the last half of uh, Genesis will turn much more to an episode-by-episode format, as opposed to smaller sections like we've had up to this point. And some of those episodes, as you know, if you've read through Genesis, will cover up to a couple of chapters at a time to get sort of the full sense of the account of the story that we're dealing with. One final thing to note here before we jump into the the scripture text is that you'll notice that the servant that Abraham sends to find a wife for Isaac goes unnamed. Jewish tradition has given him a name. The Jewish tradition Uh, says that this servant is Eleazar of Damascus. We read about him in chapter 15 of Genesis. He was likely the manager of Abraham's estate and his business matters, but, but we don't know for sure. He's unnamed in our text for today. I'm going to be jumping through a few sections as we make our way through Genesis chapter 24. 
Uh, and I would remind you uh, that this is God's word to us. Genesis chapter 24, verse 1. Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to his senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country where you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, so that you can get a wife for my son from there. So Abraham's servant does just what he's told. He makes his way to Mesopotamia, to Abraham's homeland. And we pick up the account in verse 12. So Genesis 24, verse 12. Then he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have had enough to drink. And then we'll jump down to the servant's reaction in verse 26. Here's how the servant reacts to what he sees. Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. So Rebecca and the servant then go back to her home and visit with her family. And the servant tells Rebecca's father, Bethuel, and her brother Laban the whole story. And in verse 50, we see their response to what has taken place. So verse 50, Laban and Bethuel answered, This is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebecca, take her and go. And let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. And then I want to jump to the conclusion of the story. 
starting in verse 59. We'll read through the end of the chapter. So they sent their sister Rebekah on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. Then Rebekah and her attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac had come from Bir Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Gracious God, this is your holy, inspired, authoritative word. May you speak to our hearts today. May our hearts be receptive to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we reflect on this longest chapter in Genesis, I want to highlight or, or draw your attention to four threads, four strands that run through really the entirety of the chapter. And the first one is this, and that's the focus on God's covenant promises. The focus on God's covenant promises. We see this right away in verse 1 of our text. It says, Abraham was now very old and the Lord had blessed him in every way. Think back to God's promises to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 when God says that he will bless Abraham and make him into a great nation. There are many areas of our text that help us see the reality that Abraham had become quite wealthy. Uh, First of all, we have the fact that he owned many camels. Historians tell us that this was not common in the era in which Abraham lived. Only the richest of people would have had enough resources to send off a servant with 10 camels loaded with supplies and gold. And of course, when the servant gets to Abraham's extended family in Mesopotamia, we find out that he's carrying a bunch of gold with him and he comes right out. The servant comes right out and tells the family that Abraham was wealthy. Suffice it to say, Abraham had been blessed. He had been made successful, that God had certainly followed through on his promise to make him into a great nation. But we know that God's promises to Abraham were not really about wealth. They weren't primarily about the size of his estate. They were about what would happen through him and through his offspring. And and so we see this oath that Abraham has his servant enter into. It's sort of a strange way to make an agreement. Most of us, I think, would prefer a handshake. But Abraham chooses the the old hand under the thigh method of oath-taking. And if you are so inclined, you can Google this, and there's a whole bunch of theories as to how this worked. We only see it one other time in the scriptures, and that's uh, later in Genesis. We'll stumble across this again. It's not a a common scriptural way, a a biblical way of, of making an oath or an agreement but it is something that shows up a couple of times. It is uh, akin to a handshake deal that we would have in our culture today, although a little more 
uh, intimate. And what oath does Abraham make his servant or ask his servant to take? In verse 3, he asks the servant to swear that he will ensure that Isaac's wife comes not from the Canaanites, not from the people uh, among whom they are living, but from uh, someone, a family from Abraham's homeland, from his extended family. And if you read the text and you you follow through, you'll find that Rebecca is the granddaughter of Abraham's brother. Uh, So if you're sketching out the family tree in your mind, you know that Isaac marries his first cousin once removed. Now we might think that that's a little bit odd, but before we get too judgy about this, it's actually been pretty common throughout the course of human history. Albert Einstein, Rudy Giuliani, Jerry Lee Lewis, H.G. Wells, Charles Darwin, the outlaw Jesse James, all married some degree, some fairly close degree of cousin. In fact, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip were only one step farther removed from Isaac and Rebecca. And if you've done uh, much study at all of the homestead era in our part of the country, you'll know that this was quite common, not often talked about, but quite common in history, even in our part of the country. But the question that matters for us today is really why? Why did Abraham place so much importance on Isaac's wife not coming from the Canaanites? And I think the answer is it's actually fairly simple and we'll see this throughout the rest of Israelites history. So what's beginning today is a theme that's going to run throughout the rest of Israel's history that whenever there's intermingling and intermarriage between the people of God and their pagan neighbors, the faith and the faithfulness of God's people is always compromised. And so this is the beginning of a theme that will recur throughout the Old Testament of God commanding his people to stay separate, to keep themselves distinct from those around them. But why is God so concerned about that because we see this change a little bit when we get to the New Testament era right we don't we don't see these same prohibitions in the New Testament that we do in the Old Testament and in order to understand that I think we have to understand what God is doing he's preserving for himself a people through whom he was going to bless the world or from a New Testament perspective we would say that God was preserving setting apart for himself a people through whom he was going to save and rescue the world from sin. Israel was to be a vehicle through whom God would send his son to save the world. And so he is preserving and he is ensuring that that vehicle is well preserved to accomplish his purposes. God is, we might say God is carrying out his covenant promises. He's making sure that his promises come about through Isaac and his lineage. The second thread that runs through this chapter that I want to point out to you today is the centrality of prayer and worship. I don't know if you noticed it as I read through the text. It's it's almost sort of rhythmic in the text, actually. If you take time to read from start to finish chapter 24, which I would encourage you to do, uh, it becomes even more clear. Every step of the journey, from the time that Abraham gives instructions to the servant until the time that they return back with Rebecca uh, and the marriage takes place, everything is centered around prayer and a response of worship. Verse 12, for example, says, Then he prayed, Lord, God of my master, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. 
Verse 26. Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham. Verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. There's a consistency that's worth noting here, that's worth paying attention to and considering that every time something goes well for this servant, he responds in worship to the Lord. I don't know if you're, if you're like me, I've noticed with myself that I'm quick to pray for something, to ask for God's help in a situation, but I'm not nearly as quick to give the Lord credit, to respond in worship when he answers my prayer. How often do I actually stop? How often do I respond as the servant does and bow down before the Lord when he provides? Have you noticed that about yourself? I think you're probably like me. Quick to pray when there's a need, slow to respond in worship when God provides for that need. We find in our text today a reminder of the centrality of prayer and of worship to all of the Christian life. We find here that the concept that Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he encourages us to pray continually. I'd encourage you to hear these words this morning, not as law, not as just an accusation of what you've done wrong, but really hear this description that we see in Genesis 24 as an invitation from the Lord, that God invites us to live in this way, to live in relationship with him. This is relationship, right? Communicating and then responding when God provides. This is what it means to live in relationship with the Lord, to continually run to him with our sorrow and our joy, with our needs, and then to respond in worship when he provides. One of the things we see in this text that I think is helpful is that God is concerned even with the mundane, with the intricate details of our lives with the everyday and so we're reminded of how central prayer and worship are for the life of the christian to our relationship with the lord but there's one more act of worship that's worth pointing out in this text and that's seen in how rebecca responds to what the lord does verse 17 her father and her brother call her and give her the option to stay with them and to not go with the servant and what does rebecca say She says, I will go. She sees how God has orchestrated and ordained her circumstances. And many of us, if we were in that place, would choose to stay, right? This is a unique circumstance. She is offering herself to go and be the wife of someone she's never met. And yet, Rebecca sees what God has done, sees how he has ordered her circumstances, how the angel of the Lord, as Abraham said, has gone before And she says, I will go. She responds in simple obedience, willingness to go where God sends her. There's a related idea that I need to point out in our text, and that's this third strand or or thread that runs through the chapter, and that's this, the guidance and provision of God. We see this first in verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land, will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. And then, of course, when the servant arrives at the spring, it becomes obvious that God had, in fact, prepared the way, that the angel of the Lord 
was in fact doing that work that Abraham had promised because Rebecca appears. And I love verse 15. It's really, I think, a gift to us in the text that we might be quick to read over. But look at verse 15. It says, before he had finished praying. Isn't that amazing? Before the servant even finished uttering the words of his prayer, God answers the prayer. God guided him to this location and he provided. And this shouldn't be a surprise for us. This is the same theme that we've seen play out all through Abraham's life. God provides, God makes his journey a success, even when Abraham didn't deserve it. Even when God probably should have walked away, God remained faithful. Remember when God first called Abraham in Genesis 12. He said, go to the land that I will show you. We saw another glimpse of that last week in our text. God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and he says, go to the mountain that I will show you. But it's not just a sense of leading, it's actually miraculous provision. Not only does the servant just happen to run into Rebecca at the spring, remember this is the Middle East, this is modern day Iraq for the most part, and there weren't atlases, there, there wasn't GPS The servant had likely never been there before. He sets out, God directs him, uh, he shows up at a spring, and as he's praying, Rebecca, the relative of Abraham, walks out. She offers him and his camels a drink. I don't know that we're always good at recognizing these little miraculous provisions from the Lord in our own lives. And maybe it's because So often, uh, we don't recognize them until months or even years later. We don't notice uh, until we have the gift of hindsight to see how God's hands were directing and ordaining our circumstances. It often takes some space, some perspective, before we realize just how much that one person that God brought into our life at a specific time affected our path. Or how God put certain obstacles in our way that changed our trajectory. And in hindsight, it was always for the good. It was a time of frustration in the moment, but as we look back, we're able to see what God was doing. We we have a God who is always and ever acting as a guide, who is continually clearing the path in front of us, even when his clearing is to put an obstacle in our way so that it changes our path. He's ever ordaining the circumstances of our lives for his glory and for our good. This account reminds us of the guidance and the provision of God. And then finally in our text, we see something important, this fourth strand, and we talked about it last week, and that's the the greater imagery. We talked last week in our discussion of the account of the sacrifice on Mount Moriah about this, this theological word typology. And you'll see many examples of this throughout the Old Testament. Remember that that the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of Genesis. When he was inspiring these words in the mind and heart of Moses, the human author, he had the, the full scope of God's redemptive plan in mind, in view. For God, when he breathed these words into the mind and heart of Moses... He was already orchestrating the events that would come. God was every bit as much 
present in that moment as he was in the moment to come, as he was at, at creation. God is outside of time, and so we have this understanding that God is not just staring into a crystal ball trying to guess what's going to happen, trying to interpret what will take place in the future. God fully knew and had already orchestrated and ordained the events that would come later. The events of our text today serve as a picture, imagery of something that would come in the future. Some of you might remember a famous preacher from the mid-1900s named Donald Barnhouse. He was a Presbyterian preacher, had a nationwide, one of the first to have a nationwide radio show from Philadelphia. And uh, Barnhouse was, was a faithful gospel preacher. And when he preached on this text, he, he drew an interesting connection. I think it's worth us just considering this morning. Listen to what Barnhouse says. He starts talking about Rebecca, and he says this, Rebecca was thought of before she knew it and was chosen when she did not know the existence of her bridegroom. So let that just sit in that for a minute, that Rebecca was chosen before she knew it, that she, she didn't know the existence of the bridegroom whom God had chosen her for and for her. But then Barnhouse, so he kind of makes us sit in that for a minute and, 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 and recognize uh, the power of that. But then he goes on to say that Abraham's plan to find a bride for his son is not just about Isaac. And it's not just about Rebekah. That it's a picture that it's a picture of God's work to prepare a bride for his son. And of course, this is imagery that we're going to see. It's a thread that doesn't just run through Genesis 24. It runs through the whole Old Testament. We can look at almost every book in the Old Testament and see this clear wedding imagery in relation to God's plan, to God's redemptive work. Paul used this imagery, of course, in Ephesians chapter 5. He said, husbands, love your wives. He's speaking very practically in this moment. Husbands, love your wives. And what should be every husband's least favorite passage of Scripture, as Christ loved the church, that's a high calling, to love our wives as Christ loved the church. But Paul was teaching on what husbands and wives should do in relationship with one another. But then he uses it as an opportunity to talk about something bigger, something better. He says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without Blemish. So Paul shows us here that this wedding imagery, this bride and groom imagery that we find so prevalent in Genesis 24 is a picture of something bigger, something better. The picture of Christ coming to call his bride to himself. Rebecca was not just set to become the mother of Israel, but she was a type. She was a precursor of the church, the true bride selected by God before she even knew the groom existed. Just as we were chosen in him, scripture says, before the foundation of the world. 
This narrative from Genesis 24 doesn't just explain to us how Isaac gets a wife. No, it reminds us of God's covenant promises. Promises that are for us today. It shows us the centrality, the central nature of prayer and worship to the people of God. It it shines a light, it reminds us, it calls to our attention God's continual, ever-present guidance and provision in our lives that he watches over us as our psalm reading said both now and forever and then finally it serves to point our eyes to something bigger something greater that Christ the true groom will come again for his bride the church it reminds us of who we are that we are the beloved and chosen bride Christ. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, it's often amazing when we can look back on our lives and see how you have orchestrated the events and the circumstances, how you have ordained specific moments in our lives as part of your great purpose to advance your kingdom. And we can see this so clearly in our text for this week, how Your angel went before the servant, preparing the way, making his journey successful. Lord, help us to have eyes to see your work in our lives more clearly. Give us eyes to see what you're doing, how you are providing, how you are ordering and ordaining our lives and our circumstances for our good, for your glory. We thank you that above all, you you did what you did, not only for Isaac and Rebekah, but for all humanity, because it was through them that you would send your son to to rescue and redeem all people, including us. God, give us the heart of that servant that we saw in our text, to rely on you for each step, to pray continually, to respond in worship. And give us the heart of Rebekah when we see your work to simply say, I will go. And above all, we thank you for the picture of your church, of that which you have made us a part, the bride of Christ, awaiting his return, awaiting that great marriage supper of the Lamb when sin will be no more and and death will die. So Lord, keep us rooted and established in your covenant promises to your church, to the bride of your Son. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.